Hello dear listeners, whether you're just finding us or have been with us for a while, welcome. At Dreams and Crimes, we've got a treasure trove of stories waiting to be discovered. We like to describe them as a cosy blanket after a long day of work, or a ticket to a thrilling adventure before bed. If you're a long-time listener, thanks for sticking with us. Your support means the world. Want to take it up a notch? Consider subscribing to Dreams and Crimes on Apple Podcasts or YouTube. We're cooking up something special, turning these stories into videos. We've put a lot of efforts into them, and they're actually super good. And now, let's dive into today's story. Captain Cash In the late 1990s, London had a thriving drug trade, and Ken Avery was a top-level heroin dealer living the high life. Avery was well-dressed, making money hand over fist, and was known for always having a briefcase full of cash with him, which earned him the nickname Captain Cash. Avery had been smuggling drugs, selling fake passports, and laundering money on a massive scale. In 1996, he was involved in an elaborate plan to smuggle 40 million pounds worth of marijuana into the UK using a submarine. Avery was known as a playboy that showered women he was interested in with lavish gifts, once buying a woman a new car when hers could not be repaired. When he met London socialite Belinda Bruin, he was instantly smitten. Belinda was the personal assistant of Bob Geldof's wife, Paula Yates, and was involved in the London drug scene as well. She had previously been arrested with the trunk of her car full of cocaine. Avery tried hard to impress Belinda, offering to take her by private helicopter to the Monaco Grand Prix, but she declined most of his offers of affection. She did, however, accept his gift of a 4,000-pound Cartier watch. Avery was running a bonded warehouse in London, which was perfect for his smuggling business. But on June 17, 1998, his extravagant lifestyle came to an end when he was caught with 25 kilos of heroin and led police on a high-speed pursuit. He was now facing over 20 years in prison, but police offered him a deal. They offered to reduce his sentence to eight years if he helped put away the higher-level drug dealers he worked with. Avery took the offer, and his testimony helped put away 12 criminals of a cocaine ring with a business estimated to be worth over two billion pounds. At his sentencing, the judge said, As a result of your cooperation, you will never again be trusted by your former colleagues, so you can't go back to a life of crime and the enmity of those people will make your future life precarious. Those who turn against former associates should receive a very great reduction in their sentence. During his incarceration, one of his cellmates said, He knew there were contracts out on his life, but he didn't seem to care. His attitude was, Come on then, let's get it over with. There was no way he was going to live quietly. Believe me, when he goes... He will go out with a bang. Avery was sentenced to eight years, but only served three and was released from prison in 2002. After his release, he had very few friends and no money. He legally changed his name from Ken Avery to Ken Reagan and moved in with his father in a tiny one-bedroom bungalow. 
In July 2002, Reagan was looking for a way to create his next fortune when he came across a freight company based at Heathrow Airport called CIBA Freight, which was owned by a man named Armajit Neil Chohan. CIBA Freight was a very successful fruit importer. Though 45-year-old Neil Chohan was wealthy, he was a modest man. Having saved over 2 million pounds, he could easily afford an extravagant home. But he and his 25-year-old wife, Nancy, mother-in-law, and two baby boys lived in a tiny bungalow near the airport. Though he could afford a nice fancy car, Neil drove his 8-year-old Ford Escort to work every day. Neil and Nancy had recently started their family, with their oldest son just 18 months old and the newborn was just 2 months old. His employees knew Neil as a very easygoing boss. Most of them considered him a friend and described him as happy-go-lucky. His relaxed demeanor came into play when Ken Reagan came in to apply for a job. Though Reagan was an ex-convict, Neil still gave him a chance. After all, Neil had spent a short time in prison himself for tax evasion. He believed that every man deserved a second chance at life and offered Reagan a job as a driver. Ken Reagan was a hard worker and quickly gained the trust of Neil Chohan and other employees. After working for CIBA for six months, Reagan came to Neil with a proposal. He explained that he knew of some investors down in the Salisbury area near Stonehenge that were interested in buying CIBA freight. They were prepared to offer him three million pounds, about four and a half million dollars at that time. The investors were fictional, though, and his story was just a plan to take over CIBA freight and use it for smuggling drugs again. Reagan was determined to regain his drug empire again at any cost. Though Belinda Bruin hadn't contacted Reagan during his three years in prison, he was still obsessed with the woman. She had since sold her home in Chelsea, London, and had moved to a large country estate in Devon. Reagan visited her and took notice of her sprawling ranch. He told her she should make some improvements, cut down some trees, build a nice secure wall with electric gates, and put some drainage for muddy roads that meandered through the property. She thought it was strange that he made all of these suggestions for changes and thought nothing further of it. In early February, Reagan drove to see Belinda and told her he had some news. He was planning on taking over CIBA freight and offered her £72,000 per year to manage it for him. He explained that she would only have to work two days a week, and she agreed. Neil initially wasn't interested in selling the company, but after speaking to his wife Nancy about the prospect, the two of them agreed that it might be a good idea. She wanted him to retire and wanted to raise their children in India, where the schools were better than the UK. On February 13, 2003, Neil Chohan agreed to meet Reagan's associates. That Thursday morning, Neil told his employees that he was driving down near Stonehenge for a meeting. That was the last time they ever saw him. The following Monday morning, the employees of CIBA Freight were called into an emergency meeting held by Ken Reagan. He announced that Neil Chohan had agreed to sell the company and Belinda Bruin was the new owner. Reagan said that Neil wished them well, but Nancy was in ill health, and he had decided to retire and move back to India to raise his family. 
He then showed them a bill of sale for the company, signed by Neil Chohan. The employees were in shock, but ultimately, it was a busy company and they needed to get back to business as usual. The very next day, as Belinda was driving to her new job at CIBA Freight, she was feeling sick and turned around to go back home. As she was pulling onto her property, she encountered two men with an older model Jaguar and digging equipment. The men had a backhoe, and they were digging a large trench on one of the roads on her property. Furious, she stopped the car and confronted the men to find out what they were doing. She had ordered no work to be done. The men explained that Ken Reagan had sent them to put in a drainage pipe and put gravel over the road. Belinda was furious, but Reagan eventually convinced her to let him install the drainage. 12,000 miles away in New Zealand, Nancy Chohan's older brother, Ankar Verma, was getting worried. Though he hadn't seen his sister in nine years, the two were still extremely close and spoke on the phone every day. On February 14th, he received a frantic call from his sister. She was terrified. She had received a call from a worker at CIBA Freight that told her Neil had flown to Holland. Nancy knew that couldn't be true because she knew he didn't have his passport with him. Then she received a voicemail message from her husband in English. The two of them normally only spoke to each other in Punjabi, never in English. On the next day, Ankar tried to call his sister and his mother, but there was no reply. All calls thereafter came to an abrupt halt. Panicked, Ankar called CIBA Freight and spoke to a manager there named Mike Parr. Parr told him that Neil and his family had sold the company and moved back to India, but Ankar knew that couldn't be true. Nancy and Neil would never do that without telling him. He knew something was horribly wrong. Parr even faxed Ankar a power of attorney document signed by Neil, which only alarmed him more. Neil's signature was nothing more than a scribble. On February 19th, Ankar emailed Scotland Yard to explain his worries, and they referred him to the missing persons unit. I spoke to Nancy every day. There's never been a day when we did not speak. My sister rang me twice a day, my mom also, and every day I would ring them once. All of a sudden, there are no calls, no call to say we're okay or we're going to India. London police told him they stopped by and did a welfare check, but the house was empty. Police told him that the neighbors and friends confirmed that they had moved back to India. Ankar knew none of this could be true, and on March 5th, he booked a flight to London. When he arrived, Ankar got the keys to the family home from Mr. Parr at Neil's office and went to the home. The clothes were in the washing machine. The children's toys were on the floor. Their feed bottles were there. There were cooked meals in the fridge. Everything said they had suddenly gone. I got more worried. Because Neil Chohan had been in jail for tax evasion in the past, Ankar believed that the police assumed he was in trouble and running from someone. I believe they racially stereotyped him, obviously. The police kept saying he's done a runner because he was in trouble. I never believed the police story because I was very close to my family and they would have told me about it. Eventually, he convinced the police to transfer the case to the Serious Crimes Group, 
when he explained that his mother's most precious possession, her prayer book, was still in the house and that she went nowhere without it. The first person detectives interviewed was the last person to see Neil Chohan, Ken Reagan. Reagan told police that Chohan was a shady businessman and had gotten himself into financial trouble. He said that his only choice was to flee back to India. After researching Neil Chohan's business dealings, investigators were skeptical of Reagan's story and began investigating him instead. They immediately found his extensive criminal background and looked into both his and Neil's phone records. Cell phone location tracking showed that Chohan left his home in Hounslow and drove towards Stonehenge on February 13th. Reagan lived nearby in Wilton, Salisbury, and police could see that Reagan's phone met with Chohan's near Stonehenge. Then both phones traveled further south. Knowing that Belinda was now managing CIBA and the two phones had traveled near her home, detectives called her to let her know that they were driving down to question her. Belinda agreed, but Reagan was furious with her. He didn't want the police coming onto her property. He told her to call them back and tell them that she would meet them somewhere else. Belinda did not understand why he would want her to do that, but she didn't need to call them after all. Reagan always had a plan. Police received a lead on the whereabouts of Neil Chohan. That lead came from an associate of Reagan, William Hornsey. Hornsey and Reagan had sold stolen passports together years ago, and Reagan had testified against him, landing him in prison. At the direction of Reagan, Hornsey called the detectives. He explained that he knew Neil Chohan was still in the UK, because he and Reagan had plans to meet him the following week in Newport Wells. He claimed Chohan wanted to buy five stolen passports from him. Rather than going to question Belinda, detectives now decided to wait a few days and see if Chohan showed up to buy the passports. They called Belinda and told her they wouldn't need to question her after all. Reagan had still been pressing Belinda to put in more drainage on her property, and she had eventually agreed to let him put in a drainage ditch near the horse stables, so she wasn't surprised when the same two men she saw before showed up with the same backhoe. She took her kids to town for the day while the men worked. The following Monday, detectives watched Reagan and Hornsey standing near a bronze statue of a pig in Newport. That was to be the meeting point for the sale of the stolen passports. But as police watched, Reagan received a phone call. It seemed the meeting wasn't happening, and detectives had a sinking feeling that Reagan and Hornsey had tricked them. The meeting was pure fiction. On April 22nd, detectives again wanted to interview Belinda Bruin and drove to her home. During the interview, they asked if she had noticed anything odd about Reagan's behavior in the past few days, and she mentioned that she had. When she told Reagan the police wanted to interview her, he said, If they ask you what I was doing on your land, just tell them I was helping you with your water system. Detectives asked what he really did on her land, and she told them that he had dug a drainage ditch. They knew what that meant and immediately put together a team to dig up Belinda's property. Later that same afternoon, a father and son were spending the evening on a kayak trip off the coast of Bournemouth when they noticed something floating on the ocean. As they got closer, they could tell it was a body. 
As evening fell, the boy paddled to shore and alerted police, while the father waited for three hours on the dark ocean with the bloated body until police arrived. The body had suffered severe blunt trauma to the back of the head. Packing tape was still wrapped tightly around the head and jaw. One week after they found it, they positively identified the body to be that of Neil Chohan. The cause of death was both blunt force trauma and suffocation. Police still had no idea where the rest of the family was, but it was becoming increasingly clear that they were dead as well. The evidence from the body suggested that Neil Chohan's body had been buried in the ground, then exhumed at a later date and transported to a boat where it had been dumped in the water. Detectives brought in forensic archaeologists and pathologists to dig through the area of the drainage ditch on Belinda Bruin's property. After five days of painstakingly sifting through the dirt, they found nothing. But the site was huge, so the forensic team continued searching. Eventually, they recovered some jewelry that belonged to Nancy Chohan, some baby clothes, and found evidence of a large bonfire. There were still no bodies but detectives assumed that they had buried the entire family there at one time. Further analysis of phone location records revealed a chain of events on the day Chohan went missing. It showed that when Chohan met Reagan at Stonehenge, there were two additional phones traveling the same route. The phones belonged to William Hornsey and another career criminal, Peter Reese. By this time, all three of the suspects were on the run. Ken Reagan and William Hornsey had fled to mainland Europe, while Peter Reese was alone and in hiding in the United Kingdom. Peter Reese had checked into a boarding house and apparently had a guilty conscience. He confessed to a woman at the boarding house that the police wanted him for murder, but he didn't do it. He told her that Reagan had killed all five of the Chohan family. The woman called the police, and Reese spent three days running from the police, but was arrested in a pub in Colford. When police interrogated Reese, he refused to say anything about the Chohan family or his partners. One month after Reese's arrest, a second body was found by fishermen floating off the coast of the Isle of Wight. Autopsy results confirmed it was the body of Nancy Chohan. After two more months on the run in Spain, Reagan fled to Belgium, where he was tracked down by police and returned to the United Kingdom. Hornsey was still in hiding, but after another month, he became tired of running and returned to the UK and turned himself in. Just one week later, the body of Nancy's mother, Chandra Carr, washed up on the Isle of Wight. In preparation for the trial, detectives collected more evidence. Vital evidence came from the movements of the cell phones. Hornsey's own son provided evidence, and a final clue came from Neil Chohan himself. By tracing the movements of the phones, they discovered that all four phones traveled from Stonehenge to Wilton and Salisbury. The phones arrived at a small bungalow at the address, Three Forge Close. It was the small home that Ken Reagan was sharing with his father. The men had held Neil Chohan captive there for the next three days. William Hornsey's son voluntarily provided a Lexmark color printer and a gray suitcase to the police. The suitcase contained 10 blank sheets of computer paper with Neil Chohan's signature on them. 
Reagan had threatened Chohan while he was held captive and forced him to sign several blank sheets of paper. Reagan wanted the signature so he could then print documents for the takeover of CIBA freight and spare sheets to create additional forgeries in the future. The movement of the phones also showed that on February 15th, Reagan and Hornsey then traveled back to London to the home of the Chohans. Nancy Chohan, her baby sons Ravender and Devender, and her mother, Charanja Carr, were all murdered in their own home on that day. Reagan and Hornsey then rented a van and transported the bodies south to Belinda Bruins' property, where they buried them in the drainage ditch. The most vital piece of evidence came from Neil Chohan himself. While he was held captive at Three Forge Close, Neil Chohan managed to find a letter in the house where he was being held. He carefully folded and tucked the letter into his right sock. Though it was damaged from being buried, then dumped in the ocean, the letter remained intact in his sock. The letter was from Cheltenham and Gloucester Building Society addressed to Mr. K.R. Reagan and Mr. R.F. Avery, Three Forge Close, South Newton, Salisbury, Wiltshire, SP2OQG. The date on the letter was February 22, 2003, the day before he was abducted. Neil Chohan knew that he would be murdered, and though he faced most certain death, he wanted to leave a clue as to who killed him. The trial began November 8, 2004, and lasted nine months, the longest criminal trial in UK history, costing over 10 million pounds. Prosecutors presented almost 4,500 exhibits of evidence. All three suspects pleaded not guilty and claimed to be falsely imprisoned. Peter Reese was convicted of Neil Chohan's murder but cleared of the other four murders and received 23 years in prison. Hornsey and Reagan were both sentenced to five consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. The bodies of 18-month-old Devender and eight-week-old Ravender were never found. Eleven years later, in 2016, police linked both Reagan and Hornsey to the death of Michael Shalomik from Southampton. When Shalomik went missing in 1992, police and his family were told that he ran off to Europe and Nigeria with an unknown woman. The family received a handwritten letter from someone, allegedly calling herself Helen, saying that the two of them had been living together in Europe. However, the last person to ever see Michael Shalomik was Kenneth Reagan. Thanks for listening to True Crime Sleep Stories. If you aren't asleep yet, consider following the show. Maybe our next story will give you the peace of mind you desperately need, or not.